Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome along to a special programme from the Radio Show Limited network of channels. I'm John Hindhoff. Early in 2018, I was asked to write an article about Doug Feehan, the programme manager for Corvette Racing. Doug is a big character and just sitting down with him and having a chat is always a worthwhile thing to do. Well, we're separated by a few thousand miles for most of the year, so my idea was that we would get Doug on the line, record something, and then I would write up the piece for the website. But the conversation was more than just a short chat, and with the kind permission of Mobile One The Grid and Doug Feehan, we've been allowed to put it together into this programme for you. This was never meant to be broadcast as it is, so some of the quality is not up to our usual standard in terms of the sound quality. However... The quality of the content is top-notch. So let's set this up then. Doug Feehan, been working as a consultant and with GM for quite some time. And in motor racing with their Trans Am and Aurora World Sports Car Programme. His boss, a legend in automotive circles, Herb Fischel. Well, he and Doug always harboured an ambition, in fact a desire, to go racing at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, but had never been able to find the right programme to back to go there with General Motors. When the C5 Corvette came along, a brand new car, some new production methods and the best Corvette ever, there was an opportunity and it had to be taken. A two-year testing programme was embarked upon to turn that car into a competitive racer. The concept coming about in 1995 and 1996 before that extensive testing was undertaken. But there was one small problem. GM didn't have a factory team. There was no works involvement. Never had been. Corvettes that had raced in the past were given to privateer teams. It's not that Corvettes hadn't raced, they had. And down through the Corvettes history they'd been quite successful. But never had it been backed by the General Motors name. How was all of that going to change? And how had that been the case up until then? Here's Doug to take up the story. There were a couple of things in play. If you remember, in at various times, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, manufacturers at one point in time in, in, in America had gotten together and, and put a ban on racing. They all agreed not to go forward with racing. Uh, there was a there was a contingent in in America that thought that racing a was dangerous and b obviously uh, considered to be a a, 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 a a you know frivolous waste of corporate dollars. They didn't they didn't see any value in it, and so racing always operated under a stigma. And it wasn't just at GM; it was at Chrysler and it was at Ford. But all three companies managed to uh, operate under the radar. Yeah, out the back door, kind of a wink and a nod sort of thing. Um, it was a little more strident than that at GM. They uh, they they kept a little tighter control on it, but the likes of uh, of, of Vince Piggins and Ed Cole and 
and Zora Duntoff, they managed to, 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 to backdoor programs that, that achieved uh, a modicum of success, not wildly successful, but a modicum of success. And it kept, kept Corvette fans interested and kept Corvette, you know, racing at various venues. But it was never a proper program. But you have to remember in, in, throughout time, when we did programs in NASCAR, those weren't direct factory programs. Those were independent contractors yeah. operating with GM support in one shape or form. Yeah. So the very first factory-owned, factory-run program, really in the history of GM, was the Corvette race program. Uh, how important was it, Doug, that when that decision had been made and, and changed corporate policy, as you've just said, that Don Pano's and the American Le Mans series came along, not absolutely straight away, but within a, a reasonable amount of time, and it gave you something on U.S. shores to shoot for? Well, hearkening back to what I, my opening remarks, when I said we would look to see A, a would the, B, the car be competitive and B, where we would race it. Road racing in America was in a very tumultuous period. You know, when you looked at, at race series changing hands, I mean, we had an Andy Evans era. We had United States road racing um, you know, th th there were a lot of different things going on, which wasn't unusual when you looked at the history of sports car racing in America, but it was transitional at best. And, and there was no real clear leadership. There wasn't anything emerging to the front until Don came along. Yeah. And of course, of course, big corporations of which all the major manufacturers are yeah. big corporations. They don't like uncertainty, do they? That's, that is absolutely right. And it was just fortuitous it was just as i like to say in racing 50 percent great car 50 percent great team or 25 percent great car 25 percent great team 50 percent good fortune we just were the beneficiaries of good fortune that we were putting this program together getting it up and running when don panos came on the scene that was that that no one saw that coming um for, for all my experience in this business and all and and and, and all the expertise that I was responsible for bringing to the program. Um, I, I, I could not foresee something as grand as what as what Don brought. That was just that was just flat good luck. And that gave you that playing field, if you will, to go and and compete on. And no, no question. Yeah. I can't tell you for all the things we did internally, nothing was as important as what Don Panos did with the uh, American Le Mans series. That is as responsible for our success as anything that we did ourselves. The uh, the car coming into the series was, was a big story. I remember it. Um, the fact that it was going to be there right from the beginning, pretty much. Um, yep. And I, I, in some ways, I, I felt for the competition because you guys came with a... Uh, with a uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You guys came with a philosophy that was a game changer, Doug. Was that, you know, had you looked at how other people went racing and said, we can do this better and we will do it better? You know, it's interesting, John, that you should say that. And I'll tell you why. Because when I started in 1988, I was brought in by Herb Fischel mm -hmm. to help evaluate 
their current road race programs, of which there were two, okay, and they were failing and failing miserably, spending a lot of money and not getting any results. And what I did was I spent 1988 clandestinely working for Herb. No one knew that. And I was doing a white paper evaluating the Chevrolet road race programs, all right, and in turn evaluating all the competitions race programs. And then that culminated in a conclusion that said, here's where you are. Here's what the other guys are doing. This is what I think you need to do to improve where Chevrolet is headed. That was my initial project at, at, at GM. And then subsequent to the submittal of that report, um, Herb asked me if I wouldn't come on board and actually uh, begin to implement what I had outlined. Mm. So yes, yes. Did they look at what others were doing? You betcha. Did they realize what they were doing was ineffective? Yes, they did. (laughs) And uh, then I uh, got tasked with seeing if, if in fact we couldn't turn this around and try and make some sense out of everything. The, the early years of the American Le Mans series, who did you look at in the GT category, uh, as it as it then was, uh, that you said, right, if we can beat those guys, then we've got a good chance of winning? Well, I, I mean, initially, I, as I tried to, as I tried to Im, Im, implore our management and the team that we had assembled, all right, don't worry about what the other guy is doing. We're going to focus on what we're doing, okay? Because coming out of the shoot, we're not going to be the best. Yeah. Just we're not. We have a lot of work to do. It takes time to make this happen. I, I, I wasn't really interested in what other people were doing. I wanted us to focus on what we were doing. Having said that, the first major competitor, in other words, the goal line, what was the first goal? And that was Viper. Yeah. And, and, and there was no question they were dominating in Europe and they were dominating in America. And so they were, uh, they were the team that, that were carrying the target for us. Our objective was to try and be competitive uh, uh, and, and, and operate at a level at which they were operating on the racetrack. So that was our that was our goal, and it took us it took us a year and a half. Well, yeah, of of some pretty dedicated effort to uh, to begin to to uh, to challenge the, their dominance. Do, do you remember that first? Well, the first race would have been what the end of January nineteen ninety nine on Daytona at Daytona. With the C five R double O one, that is that is, I believe it was about. That might have been the last day of January in nineteen ninety. I think you're right, actually. Um, I I have it as eighteenth overall and third in class. I mean, not a, not a bad debut, Duke. To be honest, John, we were leading that race. Yeah, I remember. We were leading that race and we were dominating that race. We had, and it was one of life's great lessons. Uh, first of all, you to give me to finishing on the podium at your first outing. I mean, my boss thought I was crazy wanting to debut at a 24-hour race. But as I told him, at, at some point in time, you got to face this. You can, we can test for 100 years, but eventually we're going to have to run endurance races. And I said, I, I think we're ready. 
I, I, let's go and let's see what we can learn from this. We didn't entertain any thoughts of grandeur that we were going to go out and dominate and win, but we knew we could be, we thought we could be competitive and, and we wanted to learn what this 24 hour race thing was about. And there was no better place to do that than at Daytona. Yeah. And like I said, we went out, qualified well, pretty much dominated the race. We had all the testing we had done, when you think about it, had always been by ourselves. Well, at Daytona, you've got, you know, at that point in time, I think they were starting 70 or 80 cars. Yeah, yeah. It was a huge field of vehicles and, and a sandy environment. It, long story short, the the filtration system on the engine, which had worked perfectly, the the sand literally abraded away the filtration system, and, and so the engine began ingesting massive amounts of abrasive sand, and uh, we lost all the all the piston rings in the number eight no cylinder way. were gone, non-existent, which which I don't have to tell you provided some unique oil consumption <laughs> challenges for us. And uh, fortunately, it was raining. And so they couldn't see the oil pouring out the back of the exhaust. <laughs> uh, but that's how we finished the race. We literally, I- I'm not kidding you, we ran out of oil. We had Mobile One as a sponsor. We ran out of oil and had to go borrow oil, and we were putting it in the dry sump out of five-gallon no uh, plastic pails. No way. That's that's what got us to the finish line. Man. So were we happy with third? You betcha we were. Uh, the rest of that season was all right, 1999. A uh, couple of second places, CS Point, Laguna yeah. Sega. Uh, yeah. Second place at Daytona in 2000. Uh, second at Mosport in 2000. But if you go forward to the 2nd of September 2000, um, I was in Texas, as were you, in yeah. uh, a very warm autumn texas evening and that was that was the first win for corvette racing do you remember that dear i i remember it as if it were yesterday good for you the uh the, the environment was at a level that, that quite frankly I, in my career i'd only had raced in one other event that had that kind of thermal challenge to it and that was a trans am race in des moines uh but i knew that was going to be an issue on the positive side, and why I so looked forward to this, because this was a racetrack, John, where neither one of us had been. Viper hadn't been there. Correct. We hadn't been there. So now that helps e- even the playing field. And I had such a high level of confidence in our engineering staff, in, in what we had learned about the car and what the setup was going to be. And we only brought one car. We brought uh, with, uh, with uh, Ron and Andy. Um, I, I just, I thought, you know, I just had a feeling if we were going to break through, this was going to be the place because now everything was evened up. We had learned a lot. We're at a neutral venue and not only did we win, but we dominated. I think we won by two laps. Yeah. It was a, it was a, just a glorious, hard fought, difficult, which makes it, which makes the victory even more valuable. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the turning point in our program. The the common denominator of the first race and the first win was Ron Fellows. Uh, he had Chris Neifel and John Paul Junior with him um, at Daytona for the first race, and 
Sandy Pilgrim, if that memory serves, and I think Justin Bell didn't get in the car um, at at Texas. That was the beginning of an association, a partnership, a friendship uh, with Ron Fellows uh, that continues with with GM through till today. And it's amazing when I look back now, uh, to be honest, Doug, how many people who I saw in those early days of the American Le Mans series who are still involved in the programme. How important is that continuity? But it, it can't be all the same people. I understand that. And, and Ron isn't driving anymore. But you see my point. How important is that continuity? Has it been down through the years? If you looked back once again to that report that I did in 1988, that was one of the legs of the stool. Continuity. That is where you reap the greatest dividend. And so that was my objective in setting up the whole program that in any area, any anything we did, anything we any company we did business with, any part that we bought, I wanted to develop the best and I wanted it to continue for as long as it possibly could. Because I knew spending my lifetime in this business that that was something that was that people didn't pay a lot of attention to. And I always felt that it was one of the most important elements for success. Yeah. And so we, we purposefully, it wasn't by accident, we purposefully instituted that philosophy. And, yeah. and, and obviously, I mean, the, the, the results speak for themselves, but, 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 but you look around, the people that have been with us on every level, from truck driver to yeah. race car driver. And it's so always we, been it's always been Gary Pratt's team, hasn't it? It's always been Pratt and Miller. That's, absolutely. When I walk when I walk through the door there, Pratt Miller, who by the way I had worked for at one point in time, yeah. I don't know if you know that. Um, uh, we had, I, I, I knew what their capabilities were. Yeah. I had known Gary for a long time. I had known Jim Miller, mm-hmm. and and in that group, in the Jim Miller Gary Pratt Association, I saw two things. One, I saw just an absolute car constructor savant in Gary Pratt, who had a wealth of experience and knowledge. And, 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 and not, this wasn't just a guy who could think it up. This was a guy who could actually do it. I mean, Gary is a highly skilled constructor and fabricator. Hmm. Highly skilled. Jim had a business acumen unequaled in any individual I had met. So he brought to the party tremendous business skills and a limitless economic support system. And in Gary Pratt, we had the guy who could build anything. Yeah. And 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 most importantly, they were local. Yeah. Do you know, I was just going to say that. How important was it that they were, in quotation marks, just round the corner from GM headquarters? I mean, you could you could throw a wheel a wheel wrench from, from their headquarters to, to GM's headquarters. One of the other legs of that stool was what I called geographic advantage. Right. Design, engineering, construction, and engine development, I wanted within an hour of each other. Yeah. And that's why we picked KTEC, mm-hmm. and that's why we picked Pratt You're listening to a special program from the Radio Show Limited Network of Channels as we chart the history of Corvette racing with its program manager from the outset, Doug Feehan. 2000 was a very important year for Corvette Racing. 
wins at Dallas-Fort Worth. And at the end of the American season, a Petit Le Mans shone a spotlight on their racing activities. But in June of 2000, there was another big change, something that would influence Corvette racing right to this very day. For many years, the colour yellow had not been on the streetcar palette for Corvettes. You simply couldn't buy a yellow car. But that was all about to change. And there's a story that goes with that, as you might as you might expect. <laughs> if you remember, and this is a this is some backstory. In 1999, the car debuted at Daytona, and it was uh, had a, a a beautiful paint scheme on it. But it was silver and black, kind of a checkered flag sort of looking thing. Yeah, any Raiders know. fan would have loved it. Yeah, and, and, and good wrench. Which which by the way was not my choice. And I had innumerable meetings, conversations, discussions about that. And, and, and my position was, yes, this made for a great show car, but from a racing perspective, two things. Number one, it was asphalt camo. Okay. We couldn't, you couldn't see the car on the racetrack. Love it. And two, from a marketing perspective, which were all my responsibilities here, I had to do everything I could do to try and create some legs for this program, to try and, and, and ensure that it would go for more than a year, which is all GM road racing programs went in those days. Um, I wanted something that, that, that stood out. Well, the car originally was flip-flopped. It was black with silver accents i got them to at least acquiesce to go to silver with black accents because i didn't want the hood of the car black and i didn't want the roof of the car black because of what that does thermal loading on the engine and the driver compartment good point so i won that argument and 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 i told them that photographers are 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 not going to pick this car up on the racetrack we're not going to get the exposure because there's no it's going to look like a black and white photograph yeah well that didn't resonate with them but there was no reason for it because these were the designer guys they don't, they don't know. They've not been there. That's why they had me. I was supposed to know. Um, at the end of that first year, it was clear that what I had feared had transpired, that the car was a beautiful design that simply didn't stand out on the racetrack. So we then moved. I got them. I, I wanted to incorporate yellow because I had learned in the in – the, uh, 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 Aurora program, the world sports car program, Danko was our sponsor there. Yep. And we had a beautiful tricolor blue, white, and yellow design. And I saw how striking that yellow color, uh, 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 you know, allowed you to pick the car out of a crowd. And that car got photographed all the time and it appeared every place. So I wanted to go to that. It wasn't in the Corvette line. So we developed a car that was actually uh, white on top. So I got my my engine and driver compartment cooling. It had yellow sides and then a black stripe that delineated the white from the yellow. And that was my original attempt at introducing yellow into the car. And then when they saw how dramatically different it appeared on the racetrack and how more widely used it was uh, from a photographic perspective and a media marketing perspective, um, I was able to convince them that we just go all yellow, and when we did that, then we also introduced uh, introduced the 
the yellow into the production line. And it went ballistic. It went absolutely bonkers. I mean, in fairness, it was a lovely debut yeah. uh, at Le Mans, or going back to Le Mans, should yeah. I say. I think uh, qualified second and third, finished fourth and third, something like that. Is that right? I... I, I... I, I I wish I could remember. No, it is. Yeah, up. it is. It was sixty three and sixty four. Qualified yeah. second and third. Finished third and fourth. That's I, sh- I should. That was two thousand. And and that millennium yellow colour instantly became a massive hit in the states and everywhere you sold Corvette. As as I tried to explain to them initially, we can own this. <laughs> All right. This, this this we 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 can own this colour. This can be us. And and I, I, at that point in time, I don't know whether a I wore them down, <laughs> just quit fighting, or maybe they actually saw that there was some wisdom attached to it and some value in it. Um, I, I'm thinking they actually really did. It was a combination of both. I think I wore them down, and they did see the, the value. And uh, I, I, you know, I had managed to convince Dave Hill, our engineer. And he liked the idea, and so we we gathered some momentum with it, and obviously the rest is pretty much history. That that appearance at Le Mans in two thousand started in a, a ball rolling that hasn't stopped. Uh, it's a hell of a long hill that you're rolling down, and um, because yeah. you've been there every every year since, you said at the start of this that you you know you and Herb Fischel had Le Mans on the radar. Getting to Le Mans in two thousand was only the start of a, 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 of, a, of a journey as we know now. But at that time, did that seem like... And, and, you'd, and in fairness, you'd cultivated a relationship with the ACO from the early days of development of the, of the then car, the C5. But was that... Was it, would it have been easy then, Doug, to see that as, as almost... Right, we've achieved that. We've got to Le Mans. It, it, again, John, this was part of the plan. All right. I I knew going in, I had never been to Le Mans to compete. I'd been there, you know, I, I was there in 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 '96 with the Aurora for a brief appearance, you know, a one-off deal. I had been I, Herb had sent me over there to to you know learn a little bit about the event. Um, quite frankly, and, and again, I don't know how much time you got. The, the little inside story here as much herb time is, as you have mr Feehan. all right herb had had been had been pushing me to go over there and i had been pushing back and i, I my position was i had done this all my life i'd never been overseas I, I wasn't a big fan of travel and so i was i was i was resistant selfishly resistant and I just said, look, I, I, I've been to every racetrack. What, what is this going to be different? I mean, I've been to every racetrack. I mean, I know what's going on. I know what I'm doing. I, I don't see the value in just spending resources in going over there and looking around at another race. And Herb was so patient with me. We're just This is different, Doug. I'm just telling you it's different. And, and it's something you need to see and you need to experience. Well, this went on for a long time. I mean, months. And finally, I acquiesced, and I went over. And as a child, I had—I—I I mean, I knew all about Lamar. I, I mean, I can remember being ten years old, getting my copy of Sports Car Graphic, and and looking at the black and white photos. Of course, this would be in August, 
you know, the race was in June. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and laying in bed, reading that magazine and just thinking, how, how is it possible anybody could race for 24 hours? How do you race for 24 hours? This is, this is as a 10 year old. I said, this is impossible. I come down the hill, make that right hand turn and you see the grand entrance to Lamar on your left with those big red spires, those cones heading up into the sky. I, I will never forget the first time I saw that. And it was, for me, kind of an oh shit moment. Like, wow, what is this place? And I pull in and park and look around at the infrastructure that was there the teams, the pit boxes, the grandstands, the roadways, the massiveness of it all. I went from what am I possibly going to learn by coming here to how are we ever going to do this? Hmm. I mean, it was a 180-degree turnaround. Uh, I, I instantly recognized that I was not equipped i did not have the skill set the knowledge the contacts i had nothing that was going to really help in getting this thing done and so i set out in, in my own mind and with herb in outlining all the things all the tasks that the formidable tasks that we were going to have to figure out if we were ever going to get there and uh and this is a long way of getting around to, to what you referred to as the relationship um, with the ACO. And, and, and I, had, I had known and read the horror stories about American teams and the supposed discrimination and dislike uh, that the French people had for Americans, some of which may have been justified. Most of it wasn't. Uh, but but, I, but I, wanted to, I, I wanted to do everything we could to start off on the right foot. So... I, I made it a point in all my meetings, and it was Elaine Berto who just died this past year, a, a great guy. He ran yeah. the technical department at the ACO. And we had hours and hours and hours of meetings and discussions. And I made it a point, and I told my group, we are never going to push back on these people. Right, wrong, or indifferent, we are never going to push back. We are going to do what they say, as ridiculous as it might seem. We're always going to agree. Because I said, I think they're going to test us because they see what we have here. And we employed that philosophy. And I think it paid huge dividends. I can tell you that after our first year of competition there, it was really clear that the Viper with its eight liter motor was had far outmatched our, our little six liter Corvette. And so I met with Alain after Le Mans. And I said, going into next year, Alain, we've got to do something. And I'm wondering, is there any help you can offer us, anything you can do to try and help us be more competitive? And he said, yes. He said, yes, I can. He says, uh, I, I, I can offer you something. And he said, and here it is. Go home, work harder. <laughs> yes. I'll never forget I'll never forget those words. And I looked him square in the eye 
And I said, thank you. We're going to do just that. It's interesting you should talk about that and about that early relationship with Alain Berthaud and, and the the rest of the ACO. Um, it, it was the start of a relationship that has stood the test of time. Um, we now have a Corvette Corner, for example, at Le Mans. Yes. And who would have thought of that back in in 1999, before you went back yes. in 2000? Um, yes. You guys opened your doors to the ACO when you were designing the car in the first place. And, and that has become normality now that people get involved at an early day, early part of the program and say, are we all right if we do this? Because from my point of view, Doug, um, I thought you guys went racing in the right way. And and I say that in, in the broadest sense of the word. You don't want to go to a track and have your car thrown out because you've tried to do something too clever. But right. also... You and you and I had a, com- a conversation at Lime Rock Park a few years ago, which was the the, la- the next race after Le Mans. After one of your competitors had tried to pull a fast one at Le Mans and swap bodywork and things like that, I won't say who it is. You know exactly who it was. And I walked up to you and shook your hand and said, and and this was right after the whole Peugeot and Audi protesting, Peugeot protesting Audi, and then protesting them again and again and again. And I walked up to you, shook your hand, and you looked at me and said, what's that for? I said, that's for the way you went about Le Mans. And you won Le Mans that, that year. And you looked at me and said, oh, so you knew all about that? I went, oh, yeah, we knew all about that. We knew it was hooky body work as well. And you could have protested it, but you didn't. You just went out and raced on the track. How important to GM, and more particularly to you and the group, was doing that racing in in some ways, an old-fashioned way. In some ways, the the way of, oh, uh, if if they're going to do that, let's just beat them on the track. Let's open our doors. Let's show everybody that we are legit and that we can outrace them, outthink them, and outperform them. How important was that? Well, of critical importance. And it, and it, and again, none of this was by accident. It, this just came. For my gut, okay. I, I when you race all your life, you come in contact with every different kind of individual and a billion different scenarios. And if you pay attention and you watch how those things develop, how they're how they're dealt with, what the results are, and you catalog all that, which I did from a young man forward, from a child forward, you just know the honor of competition. And, and, and I can tell you that the French are very traditional people who value history. Good point. And, and, and you have to understand that culture. It's not our culture in America. It's a different culture and you have to respect that. And they don't like people making waves for any reason. And it just, it wasn't becoming, it didn't serve any purpose. Remember what I said. Let's pay attention to what we're doing. Yeah. Don't worry about what the other guy is doing. Yeah. And we've always maintained that. You know, so much of this, too, when you look at Corvette Corner, we were very gifted when we had Gary Claudio as our, uh, as our marketing manager, as our, as our Corvette brand manager, Okay. He was the guy who was instrumental in working with me to develop this relationship with the ACO on on the marketing side. 
and and he had the unique ability uh, very charismatic guy we were known inside the corporation as Batman and Robin um, <laughs> who was Batman <laughs> I was Batman Claudio was Robin that's fantastic oh, that, that's a mental picture I'll never get out of my head now Mr. Feehan yeah, and and we oftentimes didn't really go by the rules, and, and and oftentimes, you know, that created issues. But all the time, the ball was being moved down the field. Not once would did we do anything that didn't work really well. It might not have been according to the internal rules, and it might have ruffled some feathers. But damn it, we got it done, and and it worked. And, and Gary was responsible on the Corvette corner thing. You know, we also got together before that before our, our, our inaugural debut there at Lamar, knowing full well, knowing full well that our reception might be chilly at best. Yeah. So we just noodled together. So we got to do something. We got to do something different. Let's just have, I mean, we are Americans. So, you know, let's try and make that work in our favor. And we, we were also fortunate um, Herb had a long-standing relationship with a guy by the name of Benoit Froger. And Benoit had been the marketing manager for Lamar for 21 or 22 years. And he became our team member. Benny, Benny was on our team. And he knew the insides and outs. Remember I told you when I walked through the gate and said, I don't know how we're going to get this done? Benoit Froger led us through those dark times because mm-hmm. he knew how to get it done. He knew the people. He had the contacts. So he was our key player. At any rate, so Claudio and I, who would noodle on this stuff all the time, and I and, and I'll never forget this. And and this was this was watershed moment in how Lamar began to accept and love Corvette. We decided that when we were going to go to scrutineering, you know, we would have to go downtown, and then you run through the gauntlet. And then your cars are placed in the official area, and then the photograph, the official program photographs are taken. Now, keep in mind we had we had seen this because I'd witnessed it because I'd gone back a couple times to watch it, but we had never done it. So Claudio decides what we're going to do when we get to scrutineering. All right, we're all going to have cowboy hats <laughs> because the French revere cowboy movies. I don't know if you know this or not. But they're crazy about westerns, and and they and they kind of have in their mind that America is like cowboys, okay, and and they actually like that. And we got all this information from Benoit, so we all show up in cowboy hats, and they they loved it. These were Americans; they're in cowboy hats. They thought, well, that that's that's what we expected. <laughs> well. I'm not sure. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure what they were expecting. When you looked, when you saw them in in our previous interactions prior to this, there was a a level of curiosity. There wasn't a disdain, and there wasn't this overt "we hate Americans" thing going on. But there was a a curiosity. They had known about Corvette, heard about Corvette, and actually revered Corvette simply Mm. because of the sound that it made. Okay, from 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 those that had preceded us at the event. But, but we wanted to make a mark. We wanted to endear ourselves. So this cowboy hat thing that Claudio came up with was pretty effective. They were, they were smiling. They, they kind of liked it. They were taking our picture. So we get to the scrutineering part. We run through the gauntlet. We're, we're, we're parked in the official photography place there 
with all the proper backgrounds. And so we're there and we have our team picture taken. And, and, you know, they have that big scaffold that runs up where all the photographers stand on this thing to take the photographs from an elevated perspective. And so they, they shot the pictures and then kind of dismissively, they kind of waved, you know, LA, LA, go, 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 go. I said, no, 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 no. One minute. We ended up taking off our hats which at that point in time, we had switched back to ball caps, I believe. We had taken off our, our, our hats, and in our back of our pants, each one of us had a beret and a fake mustache. Oh. And so on cue, the entire team removed their hat, put on the beret and the fake mustache, and stood there with our arms folded. Now, I want to tell you, the crowd broke out in applause Okay. These are the fans broke out in applause. The photographers were laughing so hard on the scaffolding. It was shaking so bad. They couldn't take pictures. (laughs) (laughs) They had to wait for the scaffolding to settle down to take the photographs. That next day in, in Lasarth, the, the newspaper that they print for that region above the fold was our picture at scrutineering with the berets and the mustaches. Doug Feehan, is the programme manager for Corvette Racing and in this special programme from the Radio Show Limited network of channels, he's helping us go through the history of the organisation that brought Corvette to the racetrack for the first time under the General Motors Works Racing banner. Well, it may have taken cowboy hats, berets and some false moustaches to begin an enduring relationship with the French public, although it has to be said, the rumble of that American V8 certainly played its part as well. There was no need for anything like that in the United States. The Corvette was already America's sports car. But it was more than that, because outside the borders of the USA, this was a truly global phenomenon. A brand that didn't change its name or its insignia wherever it was sold in the world. So how important was it for Corvette to go racing at Le Mans and the 24-hour race? Did it underline its position as America's sports car? It didn't underline it. It defined it. And that was written into the plan. Remember I talked about that dream that Herb and I shared. To sell that dream, there had to be a reason. And the reason was that we felt Corvette was a strong enough brand that it it, for for the recognition that it had achieved, that we could do nothing but embellish that reputation by going forward and, and racing at Le Mans. That was all part of the plan. Mm. And so when you see it today, like you just finished telling, I mean, it's it's recognized. We like to refer, not just America's sports car, it's the world's sports car. <laughs> it's recognized every place. And, and not just recognized, revered and respected. Absolutely. Based on our performance, I, I, I remember. Uh, well, I, I'll have to. I, I I can't remember what year it is, and I should have. See, this is bad prep from Hindoff here, but uh, no no shock there. Um, what was the year that you ran in the red and mainly blue colours at Le Mans? And I remember the posters around the village at Le Mans and around Le Mans itself that had that, that had the French football and the French rugby team are always called Le Bleu, the Blues. And Allez Le Bleu 
Come on, the Blues. That is their chant when they are playing ball sports, football, soccer or, or rugby. And you had a picture of the Corvette on a 48-sheet poster site in the blue colours, the special anniversary colours. And it was Ale Le Bleu. And the French, far from seeing that as as a, a slur on on them, they took it to heart. They thought it was fantastic. And, and given what you might have thought would have happened when you went there in 2000. That was an extraordinary turnaround in a few short years. An, a, another Gary Claudio really? genius move. <laughs> yes. Alele Blue was Gary Claudio. The, the, it was 2003, by the it way. Was. Yes, yes. Of course it was, because it was for the, the anniversary of the uh, the 70th anniversary. Yes, exactly. Well yeah. well remembered. Absolutely. And, and, and that, keep in mind now, how we're building momentum with this, okay? And I don't mean momentum from a racing perspective. I mean momentum in building our relationship with with the people of Le Mans. You see, you can do it and build relationships with people in France and people in Germany and, and people in Switzerland. and You can do that, and we've done that. But for me, I wanted to build that relationship locally. I wanted to build it with the residents, with the people. This, you have to understand, this race, we see it as just a big global race. The people who live in Lamar, this is the most important thing in their life. Yeah. This is their most, this is their greatest sense of pride. The ownership of this event, it's theirs. And that's how they look at that. I wanted to forge a relationship with those people. When we went to that first scrutineering situation where we had to wait, because it was in, it wasn't always downtown. It was, remember, we did it in the church yeah. parking lot yeah. across from the cathedral, if you remember. Correct. And, 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 and you had to wait. Your cars would be positioned. And the teams had them all cordoned off and they had guard, you know, crew members were guarding the cars and, and, and the people would walk up and try and take photographs. And they were very respectful. The, the, the fans, very respectful. And they knew not to go up there, to not touch anything. I mean, they, 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 they knew their position, okay? And I had witnessed that. Well, guess what? I, I'm not playing that game. I had our guys open our car up. And we took kids out of the crowd and put them in the car and let the parents take pictures of them. If you could have seen the looks on those people's faces when we did that, and that was back in 2000 when we started that. Uh, and that was ostensibly the locals who came down to get close yes. to, the, to the stars yes. and cars of, of Le Mans. Yes. And that is part of the tradition that I wanted to create for our team, that we were the people's team. Yeah. And how much we respected and appreciated what the people of Le Mans were providing for us. And we have carried through on that in one way or another Every single year we have raced there. If you notice lately what I've been doing is we have a banner each year that we pull out and I try and get a couple people out of the crowd to help hold it up if, if depending on how the setup is. And it's a, it's a, it's a big old banner that says, thank you people of Lamont. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that is how you get to where we are. Yeah. Well, that and the, the 12 o'clock hooter as well, which has become a tradition on the, on the pit list. Yes. Uh, again, another great example, and there's a story goes with that. We we wanted to do this, and I, you know me. I mean, I'm anything that's out there a little bit. I'm I'm buying. 
If it if it looks like a little bit dangerous, I want to be part of it. So we wanted to bring the train horn and do it at lunch, and that was a that that boiled up inside the crew. That was a bubble up from them, and and I said, yeah, let's do it. So I remember the first time we did it, dude. It was way louder than I ever thought it would be, <laughs> and it and it echoes off of that big glass wall yep. in the in the suites, you know, that are across the street from us. I'm thinking, oh my god, what have we done? All right, I'm thinking this might be the first time we've gone too far. All right. So the, the cops don't come, no officials come, nothing happens. People are cheering. I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, we, we'll have to, we'll have to think about this if we're going to do it again. <laughs> that evening, I, again, as part of this whole thing, we host a dinner for the executives at the ACO and we do it. We had originally done it. Uh, we had a hiatus from it, but we had originally done it at a restaurant uh, um, in in Arnage, and then we started holding it in our uh, in our compound with our own chef. And so it was that evening. We were holding that dinner, and so I was thinking, you know, something might happen here tonight. They might be telling me, you know, don't be blowing the horn, scares people, and you know, we got workers around here, and which would have been understandable. It was exactly the opposite. <laughs> they said, oh, so I see Corvette Racing has once again established a new tradition for Le Mans. <laughs> I said, uh, what would that be? The lunch horn. Yeah. The train horn. Yeah. I said, uh, yeah, that, that was us. <laughs> we love it. Yeah. We love tradition. <laughs> can you can you do it at lunchtime every day? I said, yes, we can. we can do it at lunchtime every day. They embraced it. And now we own it. Uh, extra, I mean, it's just these little things that add up to that kind of tradition. And yeah. the the way that people look at Corvette racing and the Corvette cars. And, I mean, um, and by the way, I should mention for those people who don't know that the amount of people, French people, who bring their Corvettes to Le Mans, uh, as well as people from all over the world. But it, Le Mans is, it's like the Pied Piper. Uh, for for Corvettes in France. There are so many of them around. You would swear you were in the backyard of Bowling Green, Kentucky when you get there, whether it's Changer or Arnage or wherever. French registration plates, uh, Le Mans stickers on the cars, and the French are out in force with, with their Corvettes. They love the big V8. Uh, the other thing that, that Le Mans has given us, Doug, down through the years, since 1923... Uh, Le Mans has given us some fantastic rivalries. Um, in the early years, the Bentley boys against everybody. Then we had the Maserati and the Italian brands. Um, then we had Ford and Ferrari in the 1960s. Well, from 2000 onwards, we've had Corvette and Aston Martin racing. Born out of a fierce rivalry on the track, but underneath that a genuine respect from each and every single member of the driving squad and the crews in the pit lane to the point, and we, we don't, we're not in the same place now, but I used to be able to watch this in the build-up to the race on Saturday. The crews come out and ice hockey style go down in single file and shake hands with their opposite numbers in the pit lane, and it always made me well up. How did that start? 
where did that rivalry come from and and why how come that such respect from somebody that who are the first people that you want and, and look back to last year the battle that you guys had <laughs> at, at, at Le Mans I mean trade and pain how did all that start and why has that endured as such a respectful and honourable competition well it it, it originated um, if you recall when ProDrive had Ferrari. Yes. And and they were racing here in the U.S. Right. And we had kind of just begun to establish ourselves, and then they came over and started running, and they were getting better and better and better and better, and it was becoming a duel. And it came right down, that championship in that first year came right, our second year came right down to that very last race. I think we ended up winning the championship by one point. Yeah. And that's what started that. The relationship started here in America. They were on our soil at that point in time. So we were essentially the hosts, and that's how we conducted ourselves. And, and there's, I, I think at that level of professionalism and, and, and that level of sportsmanship was something we've always tried to convey, I think was appreciated by them, and I think that they had looked – and I don't want to say this in an egotistical sense, but I think they had looked up to Corvette racing and seeing the things that we had done and the things that we had accomplished. And I think they respected that. And, and, and in fact, they conducted themselves in a very respectful way. And it was just one of those things that blossomed. Mm. It began on a, on a, you know, with a, with a, with a couple guys talking back and forth and then a couple more guys and then the teams and, and it developed into, and, and I'm not embellishing upon this into an actual friendship. Yeah, between the two groups, you know, and when when you get to Le Mans, now you're both on foreign soil, and so you're 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 you know you're kind of you're you're kind of wanting to look to, to help each other out, and 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 we did that on the racetrack, of course, fierce rivalry. Off the track, couldn't wait for the racing to get over with, so we could go out have beers, dinner, or go to the go kart track. <laughs> if I and might, just, if I might, just, sorry, it's Jude, been go ahead. one of those. It's just been one of those things that has flourished. Um, just through the, just like I say, through the camaraderie and sportsmanship that sports car racing takes forward. If I'm, if I might be so bold, I, I could say that the two people at the, the head of those organisations, being you for Corvette Racing and George Howard Chapel for for Pro Drive Stroke Aston Martin Racing, um, were actually quite different characters. George um, ah. is, uh, <laughs> have I hit the nail on the head there? Um, George is, is fairly withdrawn. I've, I've only seen George smile two or three times in all the times I've known him. He, he's not known for his, his smiling. He's quiet. He's an engineer by background. Uh, fierce competitor, no doubt. You, if I may say, all the years I've known you, very gregarious, outgoing. You love a practical joke, and I've seen many people being um, tripped up, sometimes almost literally, um, by something that you've set in motion. How did you two guys get on? You, this sort of very outgoing person, and George, much more reserved. I think, I think famously, it's kind of a yin and yang. <laughs> I mean, we we remain great friends to this day, and 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 if it, I, I can tell you this, if you want to see George smile, you only have to be behind me when the two of us will be walking through a paddock area or an airport or a meeting place because he never fails to smile when he sees me. 
And I think a little bit of that might just be in relationship to what you had just finished saying, because we are two completely different people. But we have a common goal and a common love. And I, and I certainly appreciate his position because I can tell you my early boss was that same way. Yeah. And, and after he uh, retired, Herb told me the, the reason that he had selected me to do this was because I represented all the things that he couldn't be. Yeah. He didn't have that skill set. He didn't have that gregariousness. He didn't have that level of outgoing. And he knew that that, that, that wasn't going to work well for him. And, and I, and in George, I, I, I see what Herb represented, which, you know, uh, methodical, brilliant, dedicated, um, will to win. And, uh, and, 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 and it's some high, somehow that creates a, a, a galvanization between the two individuals. And, and that's what we have. That competition with, with George, with pro drive, with Aston Martin racing and with the other competitors has been very important because to showcase, and, and let's not forget, in all of this, you and I are race fans, and we love to see racing, but racing in and of itself isn't necessarily the end product here. It's about getting more cars sold. It's about getting the brand out there. It's about a return on investment, an ROI, as as the marketeers would say, for the money, that go, substantial amounts of money that goes in into doing it. And whilst you're competing and winning or nearly winning or at least having a go with people who that perhaps you compete in the showrooms and on the street with, that's fine. But you had some years in the American Le Mans series where the only competition was the other yellow Corvette. How hard was that for you guys to stay motivated? And more importantly, how important was your job then to keep selling that to GM as a viable product and a viable project to keep racing? And why was it important to keep racing through those years? Well, there's kind of three phases to the question. First off, I never had – when I knew this was going to happen, because there was there were indicators that said that this was going to be a mountain that we had to climb. Right. right? We, we knew what was taking place. And so we had to have some level of preparation for that. I was not at all concerned internally about racing ourselves because I knew the level of competition that existed amongst the team and, and, and I'd known the, the guys long enough and I, and I knew that we could create a pretty cool environment inside to, to allow this to happen, have fun and, 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 and continue down the road. So internally amongst the team, I had no, no qualms or worries about that. Externally is where I knew the challenge was going to lie because it was only going to take – we weren't closely watched other than by our immediate supervisors, okay? Um, but I knew eventually that that, that would, they would begin to filter down that we were racing ourselves. They'd see something written or somebody would say something on a TV broadcast or – you know, I knew there would be – I knew there would be some fallout for this. So I, I tried to be – um, a, a little preventative in, in, in my approach to this. And so I put together a meeting and I wanted to explain to them, A, what was going to happen and then how I felt we should proceed and, and why this would make business sense. And as I tried to put it in terms that they would understand. And it, 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 this came 
this 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 come to Jesus was about halfway through that that time frame when we were doing this because there were some people that were upset. My mm-hmm. bosses were fine with it, and 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 my selling point to them was, you can't stop racing and 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 then pick it up a year later or two ah, years later. We have right. great people. Getting back to that continuity thing, I don't want to sacrifice any of that. Yeah. Zero. I wanted to keep everybody employed. I wanted to keep everybody engaged. And I wanted us to keep learning. We can learn just as much racing ourselves as we can racing somebody else. Cars are going through the same uh, uh, disciplines. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to I didn't want to I didn't want to lose that momentum. And that made sense to them. Yeah. From a marketing standpoint, the terms I put it in, John, were just simply this. I said, look, I said, we don't advertise in magazines for Corvette rarely we don't do any TV ads for Corvette we have no quote unquote marketing program other than racing so let's just say we stop racing and my proposal then would be I'm going to build six uh, trucks and trailers with some high performance Corvette show cars on them and then we're going to travel around the country and we're going to go to different dealerships Okay, and we're going to engage our customer in the dealership parking lot, having events and hot dogs and soda pop and people come and look at the cars. I said, so now for what we're spending here, we can do just that. Yes. Or we can continue racing in an environment that's 100 times more exciting than a dealership parking lot. Yep. Where we have hundreds of people showing up at Corvette Corrals. Yes. I said, and when you look at the first year first part of the year in which we've did, done this, I said, when you look at our trinkets and trash sales, all right, all our ancillary products that we sell, you know, Jake t-shirts and hats and and, and, and all that stuff, and when you look at the Corvette, Corvette Corral participation, I said, there hasn't been a single iota of drop-off. Yeah. As a matter of fact, both those numbers are increasing Amazing. with us racing ourselves. And I said, when you go to a race broadcast and you watch it, because it is so unique, I said the amount of time we're getting on air watching us race ourselves is probably more than we would be getting if we were racing a full complement of manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. And we had the choice Julius numbers to, to, to support all that. We had the actual hard numbers from our, our uh, ancillary goods sales. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't argue with it. In fairness, the, the drivers uh... – did you a solid on that as well? I remember trading paint in mid Ohio, wasn't it? Coming out of the pit stop, and I just remember immediately they cut to you on the pit wall, and you didn't know whether to be angry or laugh your head off because that was so Corvette. That was so all about competition. It was. I never. I did not acquiesce at all. My boss was not excited about it. I was thrilled about it. Okay. <laughs> And that turned out to be, and to this day, you will see that film clip show up. Over and over again. Over and over and over again. We were pitted right next to the Audi camp. Ulrich was there, as you know, a close personal friend of mine. And, and, and that entire team came over and was shaking our hands <laughs> for what they had just seen take place right in front of them in that pit lane. And, and by the way, we both of those cars got a ten minute stop and go. Yes, <laughs> I said, I'm thinking I, that only made me laugh more because there wasn't any other cars in the class. <laughs> and so I was talking to the pit marshal because they're they're held right in the pit lane, 
all right? And I said to him, I said, I think you better get on the radio to the tower. He goes, now what? I said, who are they going to release first? <laughs> who, what what ten-minute penalty expires before the other one? <laughs> and he said, oh, my God, I don't know. And so he gets on the tower, and the tower had the same response. We have, we have no idea. I said, you know, if you release them at the same time, you're going to get a replay. They have the results. And, 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 and we did kind of, although I had talked to them about not actually making physical contact. Yes, yes. But they drag raced out of the pit lane. It was, a, it was a, just a great moment in time. And I think it, it, really, it really exemplified what it was we were doing. We were racing. And, and and we weren't losing momentum, and we weren't losing any – not a single fan. If anything else, we were gaining fans. This was – when I got back, I, I mean, I, I, I had to spend some time in front of some people explaining what, what we were doing. Yeah. And by the time I got done, they were smiling and understanding and, 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 and realized the value in what they had just seen. Uh, how, it, was a, it was a very positive moment for me. How hard a sell was that for you to the higher-ups – at, at GM, not necessarily your immediate superiors who clearly had bought in to the the thought of, of going racing and, and keeping that racing going by this point. How hard a sell was that for you to, uh, you know, let's be honest, keep finding the budget when you were putting your submission in uh, to it, to the, the guys who made the decisions? It, 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 it wasn't. When I, when I couched it in those terms... Mm. All right, because they had seen the value of what we had been doing. Yeah. All right. Just keep in mind, this was the whole. This was all Corvette marketing was the racing program. Yeah. That's all they had. So no one really wanted to see it. And 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 by the way, there was light at the end of the tunnel because we had a plan to uh, to get to GT2. It was just going to take us a while to get there. This is a special program from the Radio Show Limited network of channels as we chart the history of Corvette racing with its program manager Doug Feeham. And still to come, we'll be looking into the future with a new and very different Corvette road and race car on the horizon. How does that fit into the plans for Corvette racing? And will Doug Feehan be a part of it? But for the next part of the story, with GT1 on the win, Corvette racing were left with a decision to make. Continue to support GT1 where they had no competition or take the challenge of a new category of racing. It was it was one of those things that it, it became, I mean, just the obvious answer. I mean, when there was no more GT1 competition, then you had to t- take a half a step back. And where where is the competition? Yes. Well, the competition's in GT2. Well, okay. I mean, it was pretty simple actually. All right. Well, well then we need to go GT2 racing. And so then we had to look at what was necessary to accomplish that task. Which wasn't all that much, quite frankly. Right. I mean, it was an engine, mostly an engine deal, you know, and and uh, and it, it, it wasn't it wasn't near as dramatic as it might have seemed from the outside. Right. It was pretty straightforward inside, and we as as at that point in time we we had established some a, a level of trust in our total management system that we weren't going to do something foolish. And uh, they began to believe in, in what we were doing and, and how we accomplished those things and in the relationships that we had both here and abroad so that, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't 
I wasn't anticipating any difficulty, any you know pushback from outside our organization. I didn't anticipate any problems from either sanctioning body. There really weren't any. And, and quite frankly, they were pleased that the sanctioning bodies were happy that we were making this decision because they wanted to keep us around. Of course. They didn't want us going away. So you put all those things together and it was not, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't that big a deal. In in terms of of those uh, years, the the end of the ALMS period, it was a, a time of flux in sports car racing. Um, there had to be change. There was change, and that has now found us in this bold new era of the IMSA Championship, reviving a great name. Um, Birth pains, always difficult, but you guys have stuck with it as well. Fantastic victory at Daytona last year, again with your two cars right at the front. But we've got to talk about more than 100 victories now, Doug. Uh, 2016, it was finally done. Um, Sebring was the 99th, and it really should have been 100 at Long Beach. Um, <laughs> it really should have been 100 at Long Beach. And I, I just wonder what roller coaster of emotion you and the team were going through there because that was your race that was your race start beginning and end and there was a coming together with a Porsche the other Porsche went through to win it how do you deal with that well keep in mind now first off I had no idea and I'm being straight up with you that we were approaching a hundred victories it's not something that I ever really thought about. I've never had paid any attention to it. And I can tell you, for the most part, I'm not sure anybody on the team really paid it any ever mind. It wasn't until the marketing PR side came up and said in, in some kind of release that we were at, you know, 96 or 98 victories and blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, holy Christ, yeah, wow. And that's kind of like what everybody inside thought, too. But there was, surprisingly enough, and I don't think I'm talking out of school here, Yeah, it wasn't that big a deal. Now, I mean, we knew it would be cool, but it wasn't something that we were wringing our hands over and, and, and looked at every lap, like what we can do so that we can get this hundredth victory. That well, it wasn't like that at all. I mean, we approached every race just as we had in the past. I mean, we knew eventually it was going to happen. But it wasn't a driving. It wasn't a driving force. It didn't provide. We're a pretty motivated group. It yeah, wasn't yeah. providing any additional motivation for us to get number one hundred. Um, I mean, we knew it would be cool, and I don't want to diminish its importance. But it was not. A, it was not a, a driving or motivating force that provided us any extra energy to to accomplish it. Yeah. And, and 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 I got to tell you, I'm not sure when I when the the the, the heartbreak. At that Long Beach race, wasn't that it wasn't the hundredth victory? It was just that we didn't win. Yeah, <laughs> but that's because your competitors. And I mean, yeah. you, you'd had yeah. some, you'd had some lean years through that GT two period we were just talking yeah. about, um, yeah. and you know, it hadn't been the certainly hadn't been the Corvette Racing steamroller, but but. You guys had got back to winning ways and started to put things back together again, more than started. You were on a roll again. So by the time you got to Lime Rock, by then you did know it was 100 wins coming. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that was... I mean, in, in some ways, had it been Daytona, which is where the story started, that would have been 
almost the perfect story. But to have it at Lime Rock, that very American bullring of a yeah. circuit with the in, in the way that which it happened in the fact that the way the weekend was organized with the class system that weekend for you guys to come through and take that 100 victory there I wasn't there I wasn't there for that race and uh, I had to sit and listen to it on IMSA radio and I mean extraordinary emotion when Jim Roller called that I mean, yeah. then you did know it. How was the pit then? How was it on the on the perch then? Well, it it was an interesting dynamic. I, it, it's no secret. Not a lot of people really enjoy going to Lime Rock. It's been my finding anyway. We don't because there's just so many extraneous challenges. Yes. You know, where are you going to stay? Where are you going to eat? Where are you going to paddock? Where are you going to put your stuff up? How big a space are you going to have in pit lane? I mean, it's... It's hard to race there, all right, just on a bunch of different levels. And the fact that you run around in a lap in a minute, you know, I mean, just by the luck of the draw where the where the yellow flag comes out, where the pace car comes out, I mean, you can go two laps down there and not even know what happened. Yeah. Anytime you win there, you're just – it gives you a special sense of victory because you've defeated not only your competition, but all the other stuff that's in place to cause you not to do well. Correct. Your your crummy hotel room, the 45-minute drive to the racetrack, the cramped space in the paddock, all those are your enemy. So you have way more competition there than just the guys you're racing against. So when you win there, it, it, it kind of has a very unique feel to it. Add to that that it was number 100 in the most unlikely place. It was pretty cool, and you could see it on the guys' faces. Yeah. All that came through. Not only did we beat Lime Rock, but we beat the competition, and it was for our 100th victory. When you, when you look back about it, I, I mean, I would have never dreamed that that would be the place we would do it. No. But it was pretty appropriate because it's, it's, it's one of those storied and iconic. I have so many great memories at Lime Rock. Um, it's such an American I, track as well, isn't yes. it? In terms well, of road racing. Now, now for me personally, you got to remember, I was a director of racing for Mac Tools before yeah. I went to General Motors. Okay. Mac Tools is headquartered just outside of Hartford. Yep. Just up the road and in Connecticut, so, yeah. And so when I when when Lime Rock was their home track. So I worked with track management on, on a day in, day out basis. The very first the very first I and this is a side note again, but we can't talk about this without without me spilling my guts on this stuff. But the, 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 the Mac Tool company, I worked with Lime Rock to have the Mac Tool guys bring their trucks because those are their stores. Yes. You know, there were 2,000 of them at that time throughout the nation. And I set up a deal with them where they would actually take their Mac Tool trucks and do a pace lap of Lime Rock. Excellent. And, and they loved it. They loved it. So that place has huge memories for me long before my association with GM and certainly long before Corvette. So that kind of added, added to me. I mean, it, it, Lime Rock holds a very special place in my heart. One of those love-hate relationship kind of thing. <laughs> but, 
but it is it is just it's such an iconic place and it has so many personal memories for me i i think it was almost a a calling that we would have won 100 there and the winning continues as i said um extraordinarily um back in 1996 when you started all this um i can't imagine you'd think you'd be sitting talking to a bloke from the northeast of england um on this kind of technology uh, so that it sounds like we're both in the same place uh, in 2018, still talking about Corvette racing winning. Or did you, did you think that you were building something dynastic, uh, something that would last the test of time? Because motorsport normally doesn't give us, you know, if I think back to Audi and 17, 18 years at Le Mans, then you've got to think, about Corvette and the time that you guys have had in American racing and and at Le Mans, and very nearly with a you know batting five hundred at Le Mans as well. Let's not forget. I, I'm being straight up when I tell you. Did, did I think? Did I believe that this program could have immense value? Yes, I did, and yeah. I and I and I and I think that sincerity came through in the way I presented the program. I didn't present the program as a 20-year program. Right? <laughs> I, I, I presented it as as a, a, a marketing exercise that I thought could deal with the bottom line, create a value in the Corvette name that it so richly deserved, and that was the responsibility of the company that gets back to this factory program thing, that they had a responsibility to their brand to do this and do it the right way. I wasn't thinking t- t- 20 years out. I was hoping that, 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 that if we created that value, that, that it could run and continue to run. But I never, I, I was so focused on the, on, on what we were doing then and what I needed to do to, to solidify tomorrow that I never really spent a whole lot of time thinking about how long could it go. Um, I'm on, on one hand, I look back and and think of the time I've spent, and people would actually refer to that as a career, <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I never I never looked at it that way. It's shocking to me when I think of of how long the thing has has run and run successfully. But uh, but that it just it's a it's it's that wasn't a, a goal. I'm not surprised that it has. All right. Because it's the only thing that GM has ever done that, that, that they were directly responsible for. I mean, it's the only program of its kind in the history of the company, yeah. quite frankly. I mean, we've done things like NASCAR for a long time and IndyCar, but but those are, for lack of a better term, kind of sponsorship things. Yes. This really has benefits. We've – and this was part of the program, one of those legs on that stool, stool was to weave this program into the fabric of the company. Yes. And I use the term – that racing is way more than a checkered flag and a trophy. And Corvette racing is going to show you how that works. And, and, and we've done that. And, and to me, that's an achievement that is, uh, is certainly of, of equal greatness as to anything we've actually achieved on the racetrack is what we've done um, in, inside the company. Yes. I mean, we, we, new generation car is, is hand in glove developed between the race team and the production team. I mean, we have people on both sides working on a daily basis. This is the C8. Yes. Well, you, you saw it in the C7. Yes. And the state is just an, a, a, a wildly amplified 
uh, um, structural version of that. When I say structural, I meant corporate structure. Yes. Of that, we have taken it. We have taken it to an complete. You, it couldn't be. What I'm telling you is, it couldn't be anymore. Really, the philosophy behind it is: yes. we will, um, we will use every tool in the box, and that includes racing, and that's one of the big tools that we can use. And we're going to deliver to our customer the closest thing that they can get to a real race car. The philosophy of providing a street car with a race car feel, but with the reliability required of those who might use it every day, along with the transfer of technology from the track to the road, sometimes in the opposite direction, and the sheer numbers of Corvette that have been built down through the years, extraordinarily large for a performance vehicle, have rightly earned it the title of America's sports car. For more than the last two decades, the team entrusted with taking the car into competition as a works team have been Corvette Racing. The programme director is Doug Feehan. And in this final part of our special programme on the Radio Show Limited network of channels, we look to the future for Corvette Racing and for Doug. But first, what about the here and now? Doug has spent almost all of his career in motor racing. So how does this era stack up in the history of sports car and endurance competition? I can tell you that in my entire lifetime, which I have spent racing in one form or another, and the last 30 years sports car racing at GM, sports car racing has never been in a better spot than it is right now. Mm. It has never been healthier. It has never been more competitive. It has never shown the level of quality and expertise and professionalism that it has today. This is an amazing time. When you have Alonso come over and run in Daytona and say, say the best sports car racing in the world is in America, mm-hmm. you know you've accomplished something. And, and, and that's what the sanctioning body has, has done here. It, it, it's never been better and it's never been healthier. And, it's, and, and, and there, every sign points to it only getting better because we've been able to create a marketing dynamo. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just not us, not just Corvette. But, 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 but you know, and, and, and this gets back. And I believe this, John. And again, this is not bragging or being egotistical. When, uh, when all the other manufacturers, and you, and you look at their level of participation, when they saw us for almost two years race ourselves mm. and sell cars and bring fans, I think they saw the strength and the value in the series and racing in this country. Yes. Because, that's, because, because we showed them what could be done. All the things you could do. I mean, you go to a racetrack now. It's not just Corvette corrals. There's, everybody has a corral. Correct. Okay. Doesn't have the same level of participation. But they saw what that can bring. You know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Yeah. And I think I think that I think that was a breakthrough moment for them because that's when we began to see the full factory efforts coming. Yeah. Into that new GT. Well, at that point, GT2 class, and everybody up their game. And then we saw the prototype thing, you know, come aboard, and 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 the strengthening of the of the of the relationship between uh, American Le Mans and Le Mans in and of itself. Yeah. And you go back and you look at the class winners 
Oh, yeah. In Lamar. And it's there's a preponderance of those victories that have been taken by American based teams. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a number that doesn't get talked about much. But but that, but but, but uh, that's it's forgotten. It's it's too easily forgotten. That I I remember commentating at Le Mans when I think there was only two podium spots in all four classes that weren't full season LMS entries, and that happened yeah. not just one year. No, I, I'm interested, Doug. In as we look into the future, it's it is a time of great change in world sports cars and at Le Mans. The relationship that you guys have and you personally have with the the ACO continues uh, through Pierre Fillon who I believe is a very strong president for the ACO and I like some of the things that he's done recently and, and putting Le Mans right at the back at the very top of the agenda as far as the World Sports Car Championship is or uh, the World Endurance Championship as I should say uh, is is one of those and I think finishing at Le Mans is as a strong uh, statement for how important Le Mans is. There's also moves afoot by a number of manufacturers, a uh, number of your competitors, Ferrari, for example, Porsche, possibly Aston Martin as well, to have the top class at Le Mans either be based on or at least look more like street cars. Now, we, we've seen down through the years a number of great renderings of... Uh, prototype style GTPs for those of, of our age um, yeah. uh, th- that are based on a Corvette and are distinctive and instantly recognisable as a Corvette. In a brave new world of C8 and possibly we might be looking as far as C9, is that something that you think you could sell to GM to say, guys, we could go and win Le Mans outright if we had a hypercar to base our championship challenger on or is that a step too far and does Corvette still have to be the people's sports car to, to answer that effectively you know you you have to have a, a little deeper dive because it's not it's just you can't just look at on the surface back in 2008 the sanctioning body came very close and I, and I worked on these groups with them um to developing a, for lack of a better term, we'll call it a prototype car that 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 would bear a huge resemblance to the to the road car. It was simplified, you know, minimal amount of aero tricks. You know, it wasn't a hybrid car. It was a very doable deal. And it wasn't until the very last meeting at the airport in Paris, I'll never forget it, where that just took a hard left and went into the wall. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into the details of how that happened, but it was a shock to the sanctioning body how it happened because it was a, a competitor, a, a change of mind amongst the competitors at the very last moment, which came out of nowhere. Right. But we got very close at that point in time, and Corvette was all in. So to answer your question, yeah, would, would Corvette love to win this race overall? Unquestionably. But at the end of the day, it has to make business sense. And when we looked at what was going on in the past with the level of resources required um, to field and develop ultra-advanced hybrid race car, um, the return on that, you, you couldn't justify the return on it. It just didn't make good business sense. And, and we were doing remarkably well selling our cars, doing what we were doing. Does that mean we would never look at it again? No. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that every year we look at what the developments are and then we make good 
objective-based decisions mm. on, on where we want to go and, and what we want to do. We would love nothing better than to be able to win them all overall with the Corvette brand, but it has to make business sense to us to be able to do that. And, and right now what we're doing makes huge business sense. Yes. It's a, this program would not be continuing if it wasn't yielding a positive number on that bottom line. I get the sense that whatever everybody else decides to do, you'll very much plough your own furrow as you do in racing. Don't worry about what the other guys are doing. It has to make sense for us. And if it makes sense for you, um, then you can get on board with it. John, at the end of the day, the final distillation, which you've just said, is what makes you a successful racer. Yeah, and you, successful you at business too. You, yeah, exactly right. Because we're there for one thing, that's to sell cars. All right, I, I give you fair warning. Uh, best and worst moments. What was, what's been your worst moment in this career? I'm going to call it a career now, Duke. You, you've said that word. You, uh, this is not just messing about anymore, Mr. Feehan. This, this is a career. You, you, you've coined it. Uh, you've named it. Um, what was career, career is nothing more than code for old fart. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you and me both, mate. Yes, yes. As Eve I, said to me the other day, you realise, I've been self-employed for a long time, and she said, yeah. you realise now you're self-unemployable. And I yeah. said, <laughs> what else am I going to do? Get a proper job? For goodness sake, yeah, no way. Exactly. Um, yeah. Where was your lowest ebb? Where was the time when you looked at it and said, either personally, what am I doing? Or professionally, this is not working. Or both. I don't. I don't ever remember that moment. I, I, you know, there have been there have been difficult times. There have yeah. been challenging times. But but nothing to the level that I would ever categorize it as my worst moment. No. Nothing that's making you want to walk away. No. No. Good for no, you. Not, not 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 no. I mean, I've, in my total career, I've had situations like that, but not ever at Corvette Racing. No. I, and and I, I, first time anybody's ever asked me, what's your worst moment? I, I can't recall. I can't ever recall a moment where I said, you know, I, 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 this, this is enough to make me walk away. I've never had that. I've never had that feeling, not that sense, not for an instant. You never have any problem about getting... Get- we've always- Sorry, go ahead. We've always used those. We've always used those most challenging moments as learning opportunities. Yeah. And so I, I've always, I guess I've always seen the upside of it, not the downside. I've always seen it as half full. Just when you think you've, you, you know, you've been beaten, or you've got, something's gone wrong, or, or, or you know, funding looks to be a challenge. I, I look at the upside of that. And, and and figure that, that, that adversity is just opportunity dressed differently. <laughs> As Alan Berto said, go back, work harder. That's... Go back, work harder. I mean, that's that's what you do. I get the sense that you don't have any problem getting out of bed in the morning, getting ready to go to work. No matter where that, no matter where, the joy of what we do, Doug, is that work isn't always in the same place. Um, is there a best, on the other side of that, well, no, before I ask you about it, when will you walk away? When will you know it's the right time to go? And and don't I, tell me it's when you're six feet under. Where, you know, you you, you must have thought about it because with again with the absolute utmost of respect, we're all getting closer to the end of our careers than we were um, twenty thirty years ago, and certainly closer to the end than we are at the beginning. Do you even countenance that, dear? Yeah, yeah, and 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 I've and I've. I, I, 
I had originally thought, okay, because I knew when C7 came along, it was going to be great. I knew it was going to be just, I mean, it was going to be the greatest Corvette ever built. It was going to be really cool. It was, it was going to have so the production car was going to have so much content in it. It was just going to be spectacular. I, I, and so I'm thinking, you know, when we get to there and I get to C7 to Le Mans and, and, and we get to, we get to debut C7 at Le Mans, that would probably be a pretty good time to, you know, close the book. <laughs> well, Shit, that came and gone. I kind of forgot that I that, <laughs> kind of made that pledge. So now that happens logic- when you get old, mate. You forget things. Yeah. You can't help it. <laughs> so, so logically, now you would t- take that same form of thinking, and you would think, well, now C8, which by the way will be the most spectacular Corvette ever built, just beyond anybody's wildest dream. So you think, well, if that debuts, when we debut that at Le Mans, that would probably be a pretty good time to say, um, you know. Adios, amigo. <laughs> so, so, it, 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 so now it's a convergence of things. As we get closer to that C8 debut, and I begin to look at the calendar, okay? Yeah. <laughs> no one runs full throttle forever. Um, it just simply can't be done. So... I mean that if if I was if if I if, and I'm not entertaining this, but if I was to pick a time, yes. that would be a logical time. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do then? What do you do? How do you? Thank you, thank you, because that's my alter ego saying to me, "Why would you ever be in a hurry to quit this?" Exactly. Well, then, what you, then what are you going to do? Look out the window? I'm not really cut out for that. No, if you hadn't noticed. No. So I don't. I don't have plans. So if I mean, if someone said, "Doug, here's the here's the here's the plan," we'd really like. We know you want to stick around for C8, but after that, we'd really like it. We got this TV show thing planned where we'd like to do a weekly thing. You know what? I, that would cause me to think about changing boats. Mm-hmm. You know? But but I don't have anything out there like that at this point in time. There's still so much I want to do. Well, uh, and, you know, there's there's another question. What What is there left to do? I mean, you've, you've won Le Mans eight times with Corvette in class. Okay, not won it yeah. outright. It's been championships in IMSA and in the American Le Mans series. It's winning Daytona in a fantastic finish, even as close as last year. Uh, what is there left to... It would be easy for for people outside our industry to yeah. say what's left to do. But what's left to do is to win the next race, isn't it? Well, well, yes, it is, and it and it and for me, over time and cataloging all this stuff, your your psyche changes a bit. It morphs, and and you look at at what actually brings you the personal reward for what you do. Now, obviously, you know there's people out there who simply work for their check. You know, their reward is every Friday when they get paid. I, I, I feel badly for them because I've, I've never, never really had that. I've never really had to endure that. I've always loved what I've done, regardless of what I've done any time in my lifetime. I've never regretted any, or, or had any disdain for any job that I had. I loved everything I've ever done. And maybe that's just the way I, I, I'm wired up. But the people side of this, John, has taken a huge value inside of me. Yeah. And that's, for example, a Danny Banks, who I first was associated with in 1989, 
then he, I don't, I think he got married in 1989 <laughs> and to watch him grow as an individual and, and, and to, to see what he's accomplished as a person, both on a professional side and a family side. And now his son, I remember Philip being born yeah. and now Philip working on, on, on the Ford GT and actually racing against his dad. Um, Wayne, Taylor, who was my driver in 1996 when we won the World Sports Car Championship, having the thrill of his two sons race for us at Corvette, hmm. um, and, and me being having the opportunity to be there. People have become wildly more important in my life, and certainly as equally important as the product. I think that's where I find. I think that's where I find some of the great value in what I do. Yeah. Is, is is my association with. And, and if I can provide any level of mentoring or, or sharing my experiences and, and to watch them grow and prosper and become successful in their own right is, uh, has, has been as rewarding for me as, as all those victories. And, and is that then the answer you, when I say, what is your best memory? You'll say, I don't have a best memory. I look at the people that I've worked with and, and what we've achieved together. I think when we look, at the, there are moments in time. I mean, I will never forget that first Lamar victory. I mean, I will never <laughs> forget. I, 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 I remember minute by minute as we closed in on that, and and that was huge. That was huge in my career. It was huge in my life. But when we look at at, at overall, I, I think it's really uh, it's been the people. Yeah. Doug Feehan, the program manager for Corvette Racing, the official works sports car racing team from General Motors was talking to me, John Hindorf, before the start of the 2018 IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. It was the team's 20th consecutive year of IMSA competition and it netted their 12th driver championship. In 2018, taking the big trophy was Antonio Garcia and Jan Magnussen. And despite the pair not winning a race, it was their speed and consistency that gave them the title. Corvette Racing took their 13th team title in the process. For 2019, the GT Le Mans category looks no less competitive. But I think we all know that under Doug Feehan, Corvette Racing are up to the challenge. Thanks to Doug Feehan for his time, to Ryan Smith from Corvette Racing for setting the interview up in the first place, and to Mobile One The Grid, for allowing us to use the audio in this Radio Show Limited Network of Channels special programme. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.